0: All of you am I on? My own. Yeah. All right. Good to see everybody. If you would open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans is in the New Testament. So if you get past the Gospels and Acts, you'll hit Romans. And we find ourselves in chapter 3 this morning. Romans chapter 3, and I invite you to follow along as I begin reading starting in verse 1. Then what is the advantage of the Jew? or What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. When I was a boy, young boy, my family loved to take vacations to the beach. In fact, I would love to take a vacation to the beach. Uh, but we enjoyed those years. Um, I remember them going all the way back um, till my mind or my archives uh, have been filed, and, and that goes back to a specific incidents when I was three years old. Uh, my dad was taking me out into the ocean, and, and I don't remember all the details, just one in particular, but I imagine I was somewhat like my children are when I take them to the beach we're going to go get in the ocean and the waves are going to throw us around and we're going to tumble and sand's going to be in your swimsuit and it's going to be a great time and they hear that they're like i don't know how great that's actually going to be and then you you bring them there and 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 they're 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 intimidated by the waves and i i bet i was intimidated but i can imagine since i am just like my father that I was plotting, or he was plotting and, and, and promising, come on in, come, I'll protect you. And obviously, I, uh, I, I believed him. Next thing I knew in this instance is that I was laying flat on my back with the waves crashing over me. All I can remember is looking up and thinking whatever a three-year-old thinks is the equivalent of, I'm going to die. <clears throat> I'm laying there, and it felt like an eternity as the wave just continued to, to pow, pound on me. But what I remember was my dad coming over, whatever distortion I saw through the water, and his hands coming up and grabbing me, and lifting me up, setting me on my feet. And I'm assuming we did it again. <laughs> Our earthly fathers are to be living illustrations of, our, of the faithfulness and care of our Heavenly Father. That He is calling us to trust Him. I'm, I'm faithful. And we're looking at the storms, the waves, metaphorically speaking. And yes, they're going to hit us. We're going to stumble. But He says, I'll be faithful to you and, and you will not ultimately fall. And when we do, He's there to pick us up. Well, this morning, I want to press into our hearts that God's faithfulness, God's truthfulness, God's righteousness is not dependent upon our faithfulness. It's not dependent upon our truthfulness. It's not dependent upon our righteousness. In fact, what we're going to see in this text this morning is that nothing can thwart God's plan of redemption and his plan to deal with the curse of sin. It is this theme of God's faithfulness that dominates these eight verses this morning. God's faithfulness to keep his promises, but also his faithfulness to judge sinners. And so that is what I want us to see this morning and and hopefully draw us back to God's goodness to us. God's faithfulness to His promises lies behind the questions raised, particularly in verses 1-4. through These questions, as, as Paul is asking and then answering, these are probably objections that he would have received from Jews as he would preach the gospel in the synagogues. And the gospel that he would declare to them was that that all are sinners. That all are under God's just judgment. And that faith in Christ is the only means of forgiveness and salvation. And he would say that this truth applies even to you Jews who stand here today. Even though that you are God's elect people chosen among all the peoples of the earth you too must repent and trust this Jesus. If you recall, last Sunday, Paul concludes chapter 2, in effect explaining how the gospel defines the true people of God. And the way he does that is he actually defines, according to the gospel, who are the true Jews. You want to look just look in verse 28, chapter 2. He says, "No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God." And so what he begins to preach, and, and you can imagine how popular that message would be in the synagogue, saying, you think you're, you're Jews. You're not true Jews unless you trust Jesus. And to make matters worse, he says, Gentiles, that's I think all of us in this room, non-Jews who trust Jesus and the work of God has been done in their heart." They will be counted as Jews on that day. Oh, no, they will not. They have not been circumcised. No, see, what you don't understand is that true circumcision is not a matter of the flesh, it's a matter of the heart. And so Paul is literally, and more specifically, Jesus through the gospel, the revelation, the fulfillment of these things, is turning their expectations on their head. They were resting in their ethnicity, and Paul says, that's not going to get you anywhere on that day, they were resting in their, in their ability, so they thought to obey God's law. And He says, You, you aren't doing as well as you think you are, and that will not rescue, on, rescue you on that day. And so it brings us to verse 1 of chapter 3 and raises this, this question or objection raised against the gospel. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Well, based on what Paul has said in chapter 2, you might expect him to say none at all. There's no advantage to being a Jew. Haven't I made that clear? Those of you who rely on the law, verse 17, those of you who think circumcision is of value, well, if you don't keep the law, you will not be saved. And you don't keep it. And Gentiles who've been saved, they, they fulfill the law because the law is being written on their heart. They're going to judge you on that day. You'd expect them to say, well, there is no advantage to the Jew. And likely this was the mindset that some of the Gentile Christians might have shared in, in, in Rome And later in chapters 9 through 11, Paul's actually going to expound upon what we see here in verses 1 through 8 at a far greater degree, and that actually makes this passage a little difficult for us this morning because he's packing a lot in eight verses that he's going to unpack in three chapters later. But in chapter 11, verses 17 through 21, I want you to turn there, he addresses the arrogance of some of the Gentiles who understand this truth. They understand that they're the true people of God because they've trusted Christ. They understand what God's doing. And and in verse 17, Paul says to them, he says, but if some of the branches were broken off, now branches here, I'll get there when we get to Romans 11, are, are Jews. They've been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, you're a weed, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. The root is Israel. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're being brought into a family that supports you. So don't get so haughty. Then you will say, branches were cut off. So that I might be grafted in. That's true, Paul says. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And so when we read these things, come back to chapter three, there is no room for anti Semitism, there's no room. And those who would twist the Scriptures to support some idea, Paul and the rest of the Gospels do not do that. And as we'll see, there is an advantage to the Jew. There is a benefit. There is a a privilege. Paul answers the question in verse 2, much in every way there's an advantage. Sounds something like a contradiction, since we just read in chapter two. Doesn't seem like you having the law or circumcision advantage you any, but now it's an advantage in every way. You understand what Peter means when he said that, that Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. You're a good company if you're scratching your head. These are hard and difficult truths. And just as a side note, maybe it'll be helpful. Paul is expounding the gospel here. And the gospel is simple enough for a child to believe. But make no mistake, the gospel is not simplistic. It has depth. It has roots. It's like a a fine diamond that, that can be examined from other angles. And there's always new insight. Paul is writing to a church he's never met, that is just an infant in Christ, and yet he's handling these things. So my encouragement to you, if you're like, why well, how do we have to dig here? Why can't we just make something a little more palatable, something easier to go down? Can't you make this like a milkshake? You know, I'm, I don't want milk, but a milkshake would be good, and I can I can handle that." Just know that the Lord has inspired this text for us. And yes, Paul is expecting us to track with him. More importantly, God is expecting us to. And so as we work through this, I started off with an illustration of the beach. The waters might rise today, okay? But he's faithful, all right? The advantage that Paul speaks of here is not salvation apart from repentance and faith in Christ. It is an advantage, but it's not, as some sense, as some have wrongly taught, kind of swinging, swinging to the other side of, of a, not an anti-Semitism, but, but a, a false gospel that says, well, well, Jews are the people of God, therefore they don't need to believe in Jesus. That's, that's equally a damnable error. That's not what he's talking about here. The advantage he, he, he expounds upon in verse, the rest of verse 2. He says, To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? The words of God. What we would, what we would think of as the Old Testament Scriptures. They were entrusted with them. You read, as Joshua read earlier, that in the wilderness, what did God want to teach them? That man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God guided them, protected them, made provision for them by his word. And they were entrusted with that word. They were given that word, which gave them life and protection. I said that Paul's going to expound upon these things a little bit more in Romans chapter 9 and 11, and I want you to see he does. Go to chapter 9. He kind of expounds a little bit more upon what he means by the oracles of God. In chapter 9, Paul is lamenting the fact that most Israelites, most Jews ethnically, have rejected the gospel. And the question is, well, what advantage do they have? What good was it, them having the oracles of God? It did them no good, apparently. And notice what he says their privileges are, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 9. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. God adopted them among all the nations. The glory, the covenants, think of the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the New Covenant the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. There's promises involved in this. To them belong the patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those promises given to them. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So when he's speaking of oracles, he's got in his mind these privileges that Israel shared. Privileges and promises is what I want you to think of. Promises that God made to the nation of Israel that he would cause them to prosper. That he would give them a land. That he would use them to bring about salvation to the whole world. That the world would be judged through them. And so if God's promises were going to come through them, certainly that would mean that they would be included, right? We know the prophet Jeremiah's words of the the Lord to Israel, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Paul, is this the type of future you're talking about? This type of Messiah you're talking about? Most of them don't believe. Has this just been transferred over to the Gentiles? Because that's what it sounds like, Paul. This leads to the next question. What if some were unfaithful? They received these benefits, but some were unfaithful, meaning that some, this is generous here, some didn't believe. Most didn't believe. In other words, Israel has rejected their Messiah. And the question is, has this negated God's promises to Israel? Well, how does Paul reply? By no means, verse 4. Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. And then he goes on and he says, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. What is God going to be true to? What is God going to be faithful to? Israel, I have called you out through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have made you a people unto myself. I have delivered you out of Egypt. I have conquered the surrounding nations for you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And my glory will spread and fill the earth through you. God's going to be faithful to that promise. And God is going to be true to that promise. Even though, and then Paul says, everyone were a liar. Brothers and sisters, everyone is a liar. And when you hear that liar, you should be thinking chapter 1, verses 18, all the way through chapter 2. All of us believe a lie and are idolaters, including Israel. And what Paul is trying to press upon them is that God is going to do his will, he's going to accomplish his purposes, he's going to fulfill his promises, even though the world is enslaved to sin. Now, Paul doesn't explain how he's going to do that here. He does that a little bit more in chapters 9 through 11. In 11.26, Paul will conclude, in this way, all Israel will be saved. We'll get there. But here in verse 4, Paul just quotes from Psalm 51. You know that psalm? Psalm 51, it's a psalm of David. It's a psalm of confession from David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. To cover it up. And Paul quotes from Psalm 51, 4. And this is significant because who's David? David the king of the Jews. He's the Jew of all Jews. And so he goes to him and he he shows how David prayed this prayer that God would be justified in his words against me. God would be justified. He's going to prevail in the judgment because I can't stand. God is going to be shown, David says, to be right in his action. God's going to prevail, David says, over tri- in triumphing over all those who oppose him. Later in that psalm, David then begins to pray for deliverance. He begins to pray for restoration. He begins to pray, God, cleanse my heart. Give me a new heart. I know that, that burnt offerings and sacrifices are not pleasing to you, but a broken and contrite heart. That's what you ask for. Think Paul, circumcision of the heart. That's what matters. There's a reason he's going to David, saying David knows these truths. This is nothing new. God's people have always been a people after his own heart. So what's inside that matters. David says, I look forward to that day when my tongue will sing of your righteousness. So what happened? David says, my sin actually makes your righteousness go on display. Makes your justice on display and shows that I bring nothing to the table. Bring nothing. And so what's the point that Paul wants to make? David's sin did not nullify the promises of God, even for him individually. God promised to give him a son who would sit upon the throne and reign forever. And how does Romans begin? Verse 2. He promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh. God's promises continued. They came in fulfillment through Jesus Christ. And so David's sin, follow with me. I know we're in deep water. David's sin highlights the faithfulness of God. And it causes David to rely on God's mercy and not himself, thus giving all the glory to God. And as God restores David, despite his lapse in faith, So God will restore Israel despite their current unbelief. That's the argument that Paul's making. And he'll do this more in Romans 9-11. through But here's my question for us. Why why does this matter to us? You might say, I'm not an Israelite. Why why does this matter? I'm not David. I'm not a Jew. Pastor, how does this help me today? Do you know what I'm dealing with? And you're talking about eschatology and, and Jews coming to faith sometime in the future. Well, I want to know what God's doing now. This is why what matters to us. Because if God was not faithful to His promises in the Old Testament, you could not be, count on Him to be faithful in His promises to you in the New Testament. if God can make promises to Israel and he's actually saying, actually, I'm just going to give these to another group of people, what confidence do we have that these things are not secure in us? So this is actually very practical. And I know some of you are being worn out in this world. You're wavering. You're stumbling. You've had lapses of faith. And maybe your, your plague, your conscience is plaguing you and wondering, well, if God's just abandoned me. Israel rejected the Messiah, crucified him. David committed adultery and then had her husband murdered so he could have her for himself, and God remained faithful. God will remain faithful to you as well good news of this passage is that even if we are faithless, God remains faithful. Paul actually encourages Timothy with very similar words in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Just listen. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Paul says this to Timothy, who's dealing with a crisis in faith. He's about to abandon ship. Paul's about to get his head chopped off by Nero for preaching the gospel, and Timothy's now going to be the next guy in line, and he's shaking in his boots. So, Paul wants to encourage him, and he says the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. He has this warning if we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Brothers and sisters, If you are in Christ, He will be faithful to keep His promises to us even when we're faithless. Like David, we will have moments. Notice, we will have moments, even maybe seasons, of faithlessness. Of wandering from the Lord this is what Paul is trying to get us to understand. But God in his infinite wisdom and power uses our sin to highlight his justice, but also his grace. So that on that day of judgment, when we stand before him, no one will be boasting in themselves. I'm sure glad I decided to go to Oak Park Baptist Church. Nope, that won't get you anywhere. I'm sure glad I decided to go do this or I did that. Nope. You'll stand before him and you'll have no grounds and you will be like me laying on the ground under the waves of sin and our Heavenly Father picked you up. You could not save yourself. And on that day, all peoples, from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language who have trusted Christ will worship Him and praise Him forever. And none of us will say, I was smarter than that guy who's in hell. Nobody. Nobody will say that. However, while God is faithful to keep His promises, this by no means implies that God will not be faithful to judge sinners. Like, wah, wah. You know, high, now low. And He'll come back. I promise. What Paul has just explained is that even our sin shows God's righteousness and brings him glory to basically say you can do nothing on your own, I have to do it. That's why you have to be circumcised in the heart. Any of you can do that? Doctors can circumcise the flesh in the hospital, but nobody can go in and say, do you want the circumcision of the heart done? It'll cost $200. No, it doesn't happen that way. I've just had a baby. That's on my mind. Um, <clears throat> I didn't have one. Sarah had one. So there's things that we can do. That's the point. But you can't do circumcision of the heart. Or when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, you just need to be born again. I didn't have. I didn't take care of that one the first time. How am I going to do that a second time? Wherever the Spirit blows. Come on, Jesus, give me something tangible. If you can't understand these things, how can I tell you more? That's what Jesus says to him. And Paul's picking up the same theme. All we bring to the table is sin. And God, in His infinite power and wisdom, somehow even our sin is bringing glory to Him. Either in that He'll save us or that He'll judge us. Doesn't get us off the hook anyway. And people don't like to hear that. Maybe maybe you don't. And so this objection comes in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, that's how we know what he's talking about here, by the way. Here's the objection. Our sin has a function. It shows the righteousness of God. What shall we say? God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Same questions come in chapter 9. I want you to turn there again. Look in verse 14. This is right after Paul says this in a far more expanded way about his purposes of election. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You see? It's the same question. Verse 19. Well, you'll say to me then, if he's all in control over this, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? These are questions that start coming up. These are objections, actually, that start coming up. And I hear this objection at times, not just about some of these more meteor matters, but just in the fact that. God is going to judge sinners. And some of you, the lights flicked on in, in just these two chapters. Good questions. Coming to me and saying, okay, so I am tracking with you. Everybody's going to hell. I said, yeah, that's, that's, that's the bad news. ACDC got it right. They're on a highway to hell, okay? They got something right. Yeah. Okay, well, what about those people who have never heard Jesus? They need Jesus. That's why we have missions. But, but they, don't, they don't know. How are they? They're sinners. That's, they do know. They do know. Yeah, but that, that I, I know. I know it's heavy. That's why we must go. That's why we must go. If my sin serves to highlight God's righteous act of judgment or justice, and redemption in Christ, and I must be given a new heart from God, here's the objection, should I be liable for my sin? If the problem is that God has to give me a new heart, and He hasn't given me that one, why will I be judged a sinner? That's, that's what he's talking about here. does it again in verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? If this is how God is using these things, that's not really fair. Paul can barely stomach entertaining these questions. He says in in the end of verse 5, I speak like a human. I'm setting my mind as, uh, as, as Peter got rebuked by Jesus who says, you're never going to the cross. Get behind me, Satan. You've set your mind on things of man, not things of God. Same concept. You're trying to figure this out from a human perspective. And brothers and sisters, here's where I I want to comfort us. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to have questions. I encourage questions. It's it's okay to admit, uh, maybe you're drowning right now. I'm going to hopefully lift us up before the end of the sermon. But it's okay. I'm drowning. I need help. I'm not there. I still need the milk or the milkshake. That's okay. just don't want you to stay there. It's okay to admit I, I don't have an answer to that question. My kids are beginning to ask these type of questions. It's good. Just the other night, we're, we're studying and we're reading through the Scriptures, and, and we're in Genesis, and, and this was the question. Daddy, why didn't God just kill Satan? <laughs> like, why, why, why let him deceive Adam and Eve? Or why didn't God just send Jesus right after that and then take care of it? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why he's done it this way. Paul will give us a hint, and even here he's given us a hint, that the way things are done are going to maximize the glory of God. That, that's the best answer I can give, but the details, he doesn't. he doesn't explain. He doesn't explain everything. Brothers and sisters, the Bible doesn't always tell us why. And we as parents should at least understand this in the most minute examples. For sometimes we tell our kids, you just need to trust me. I'm not going to explain this to you. You just need to f- trust me. It doesn't mean it's not comprehensible, but maximize that out to heavenly things. Heavenly Father has orchestrated in some sense, you're just going to have to trust me. And so the Bible tells us this, God is all-powerful and all-good, okay? we got two categories. He's all-powerful. It wasn't that he, didn't, he, he couldn't control Satan. Satan got off the leash and, and ran all the way. That's not what happened. And neither is it that God's some monster, and he wants to destroy people, and I'm going to let Satan be my little bulldog to wreak havoc through the world. That, that's not it either. He says, I'm all-powerful, I'm all-good. That's what the Bible tells us. And That's all he wants his people to know at this point. And so the Bible gives us an accurate picture of God, but not necessarily an exhaustive picture. It gives us an accurate one. So if you're reading here and you say, nope, that's not that, I, don't, I don't like that, you're treading on territory that Paul is going to get to in verse 8 that's somewhere you don't want to be. It's okay to ask questions. It's not okay to question God. Okay to ask questions, it's just not okay to question God. We need to confess as a man who met Jesus said, I believe, help my unbelief. So a question in and of itself is not wrong, but what's wrong is to raise the question as an objection to the righteousness of God. You are unrighteous if this is how you do things. That's where you're treading on dangerous territory. Because really what this is, is skirting the real issue. You and I are sinners under the condemnation of a just judge. At the end of the day, you can can kick, you can squirm, you can do whatever you want, but at the end of the day, you're just trying to deflect. Aha, I've caught God in a philosophical problem, therefore I'm off the hook. No, it's not going to work that way. Or I'll just ignore these verses and just pretend something better. That's not how it works. And He goes on, he says, if it is true that God is unjust to inflict wrath on us, now he's talking to the Jews, but you can put yourself there too, That, how could God judge the world? Now, the Jews had no problem with that statement. It's fine, go judge those Gentiles. Just, He can't judge me. This can't be true about me. And that's usually where the rub hits, right? We're fine with God judging murderers and terrorists, just not me. I'm a good guy. But when this starts hitting home, and we start thinking about the fact that I'm utterly helpless that's where the problem is because this is speaking about me and Paul says if God lets you off the hook He must let everybody he's not he's not gonna do that he's holy he does not waver in his faithfulness that cuts both ways Paul responds to another objection look in verse 8 okay I don't like that one. So, based on this, I can just do whatever I want. That's the next one. Now, whether this are people are believing this or it's just an accusation against Paul's gospel, trying to say you're, you're inconsistent. What this will teach is that you can sin all you want because at the end of the day, God's going to give you a heart or He's not. I've heard that one objection too. So why not just do evil that good may come? I mean, if I sin all the more and that just abounds to his glory, I'm doing him a favor, right? You see that logic? He, note, he notes there, as some slanderously charge us with saying, that's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. When I was in college, I had a professor who had this exact objection. This is why he would not come to Christ. I'd share the gospel with him, and then he'd come into class, and he used that as his way of basically unmantling our whole conversation, because it wasn't a two-way conversation then. It was one way. And I remember he used to say, this is the problem I have with Christianity. You can go murder, and this was shortly after 9-11. You can go blow up a building. If you live and you believe in Jesus, it's all covered. That's how he said it. I believe good people go to heaven, and bad people go to hell. That's what he said. And in one sense, he he, he heard the good news. He understood, yeah, if you trust in Christ no matter what you've done, it'll be covered. That's good news. In Oak Park, that's the message we better be communicating to people. You trust in Christ. All you have done Sins past, present, and ones yet committed, he covers. He covers. On the other hand, my professor wrongly understood that those who place their trust in Christ, they cannot live in sin any longer. Paul says this in Romans 6, What shall we say then, after expounding upon the grace of God? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? he rescued me from that I don't want to go back see putting our faith in Christ brothers and sisters is not winking at sin or getting away with it I I had somebody tell me once I shared my testimony with a group and someone came to me and said man you got to have all the fun and then come on the other side and come to Jesus I was like I promise you I didn't have all the fun there was more fun to be had, theoretically. But it was a wrong understanding. No, brother, I was in death, and He rescued me. I didn't get to go live it up. There was great heartache and pain, great destruction. So sin or faith in Christ is not winking at sin. It's not getting away with sin. But rather, faith in Christ is acknowledging the evil of my sin and throwing ourselves upon the mercy and grace of Christ alone. That's it. So we ask God, deal with my sin at the cross. Deal with my sin at the cross. And to do otherwise is to only expect a just condemnation, verse 8 you do evil that good may come you just say well it doesn't matter what i do because god's all in control it doesn't matter no human responsibility i'll just do whatever i want and god's gonna give me a heart he will your condemnation is just it's not how it works there's human responsibility you must believe and follow him Therefore, this morning, we've been presented with two truths that we must hold together. Two of them. We can't can't dismiss one for the other. First, God is faithful to keep His promises to us. He's the one who holds us. No one will snatch us out of His hand. But second, He's also faithful to judge sinners. And you might say, well, how can that be true? Because I'm a sinner. If He's faithful to keep His promises in Christ and cover me, how's He going to be faithful to judge my sin?" Well, that question is resolved in the cross. Where Jesus bore the wrath of God on your behalf. See, in doing so, Jesus satisfies the just condemnation of God. For you, if you trust Him. And for all who trust Him. Through faith, sinners are united with Christ And his life becomes ours. So when you're faithless, how does he remain faithful? Because he doesn't see chase seers or plug in your name if you're in Christ. He sees Christ. He sees his righteousness. Imputed to your account. And So in this way, as Paul encouraged Timothy... If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. To deny you would be to deny Christ. Your life is hidden with him. You've died to your old self, and you've been raised to newness of life. And those are big truths that I have no idea how it works. But I trust his promises. Because he's faithful to Israel, or will be, I can trust that he will be faithful to me. Those who are going to lead us in the song, won't you all come up? Therefore, brothers and sisters, when we lack faith, when we fall into temptation and sin, brothers and sisters, he still views us as his spotless, pure bride. No wrinkle, no stain. And this is the good news that works in our hearts. And those who truly believe, their hearts are stirred and their hearts are affected by these gospel truths. And they say, I don't want that old life of darkness and sin. Lord, you broke those chains. I want life and righteousness and peace. I want to follow you. And so, brothers and sisters, I'm going to invite us to stand. And we're going to sing in Christ alone. It's a song that basically puts these gospel truths to song. And so as you sing, think on these things and the great faithfulness that our God has shown toward us when we were helpless and dead in our sins. Chris, lead us.